1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
2: This is Lily Gorin with the New Books Network, the New Books and Political Science podcast. Today I'm joined by Megan Condon and Amber Wachowski to talk about the economic other, inequality in the American political imagination. This book was published in 2020 by the University of Chicago Press. It is a really fascinating exploration and analysis with a lot of data to talk about how we as Americans see ourselves and see our fellow Americans. But I'm going to let Megan and Amber talk about that. I'd like to introduce Megan Condon and Amber Wachowski and ask them both to tell us a little bit about themselves and how they came to this really fascinating project.
1: Um, So, Amber and I met in graduate school at Wisconsin, and we were good friends for years before we really worked together. Um, When we were writing the acknowledgement sections of the book, actually, we really tried to think of the exact origin point of this project, but I have to tell you, we couldn't do it. Um, It came about very organically, really, out of years of conversations about research that we were reading and politics and problems we wanted to help solve. And Early on, we were both focused in different ways on class and inequality, and one theme that came up again and again in our conversations was that we were skeptical that people were really thinking about economic inequality in the ways that we often talked about and read about in our grad seminars, so with bar charts and bell curves and objective indicators and different distributions. So Amber and I started reading social psychologists who were talking about subjective status perception and how it didn't always map onto objective measures, and in particular, how status perceptions are really sensitive to social comparison, the comparisons that we all make all the time in our imaginations between ourselves and other people. So the two of us talked a lot about the lackluster response to growing inequality when it came to American public opinion And we wondered if it might not simply be that Americans were ignorant about inequality or tolerant of it, that they either didn't know the facts or didn't care much about them. We wondered if there might be something about when and how Americans were comparing themselves with others across class divides that was interfering with perception of inequality and muting demand for government to do something about it. So we started with a grant proposal um, for a single experiment when, where we would ask participants to imagine just having a conversation with either a rich or a poor person, and it grew from there.
3: Although we should be clear that I don't think Megan and I had envisioned a book when we started this project. I think we, when we wrote the grant proposal and ran the first study, we were thinking, all right, it's an article. And then we started presenting the research and we'd go to a conference and we'd present and people would say, this is so interesting. And then there'd be the follow-up conversation and the questions. Have you thought about this? Or we'd give kind of our, our reactions and our feedback and go, you know, that's, that would be an interesting second study, second paper. And it just, it was a very iterative, uh, or organic, I think is what Megan said, process where one thing just kept leading to the other. And one of the, the best memories actually from, or there's so many from this project, was actually when Megan and I would go um, to departments and present this research. And there's a part of the book that actually came from graduate students asking us questions when we were presenting the findings. Um, I'll let Megan talk about it may, maybe later, but we would often get questions from, from graduate students about media environments. Um, and so I just love that, that this sort of process was really social science, this sort of engagement in a broader community and thinking about how our work uh, relates and engages uh, the, the research and interest of others.
2: And and again, I, I would love to dive into that because you do you do talk about that in the acknowledgments and you talk about the fact that, you know, the a lot of the research saw a lot of interaction with others at conferences and as you say, and you know, having the opportunity to present it at workshops and so forth. Um, but I do want you to be able to explain what the economic other is um, as the concept and and to some degree how. How the the initial grant and the the first experiment, what that led you to and the data that that was produced?
1: Mm -hmm. So the economic other um, is someone, it's a term we use to talk about someone who is economically different from ourselves, the person who comes to mind when we think about the far ends of the socioeconomic hierarchy. So humans are social thinkers, and when we think about class or inequality or um, you know really any complex social arrangement, and especially when we try to figure out where we stand relative to others, we think about other people as reference. We imagine them, and sometimes these people in our imaginations are specific real individuals who you know we've known or seen in the media, but sometimes they're vague collections of our stereotypes. So in the book. Um, Amber and I say that humans are creatures of social sonar, that we bounce our self-concepts against others to figure out where we stand and what the world looks like. And that's what we're doing. We're trying to investigate this process of social sonar and how it affects our politics. So the economic other is the term that we use to describe this economically different person that you know we're all imagining when trying to make sense of class inequality and status in particular. There's a lot that um, goes under the hood goes on under the hood here. So different comparisons change how we see ourselves, others, and social problems. And the premise of the book is that if we want to understand the American response to inequality, which is often puzzling, we have to pay attention to social comparison. So the three of us, for example, might have similar incomes, same education, even the same job, but if you're constantly comparing yourself to people with more, you are going to feel lower. And if I'm constantly comparing myself to people with less, I'm going to think of myself as higher. So maybe you'll feel like you're middle class. I'll feel like I'm upper middle class. But then what's more, our opinions about policy and politics are going to be different as a result. So maybe feeling that you're feeling yourself as at a disadvantage, you know, you'll want government to do more to level the playing field than I do. So When it comes to inequality, focusing on different comparisons changes what we want government to do and also whether or not we feel empowered to make those demands. And this is what we investigate. In our studies of cross-class social comparison, we see that when Americans compare upward with the rich, they perceive their own status as lower, which for middle class, working class and poor Americans, that means that they're perceiving status more accurately. People comparing upward also then want the government to strengthen the social safety net and redistribute resources. We see support for food assistance, education, and employment insurance all grow with upward comparison, while downward comparison boosts status perceptions, makes people feel higher, but it doesn't do much at all to opinion. At the same time, in some cases, looking up at the rich makes people feel less efficacious. So they may want more from government, but they feel less empowered to make those demands. And then Amber and I don't just want to look at how people respond to social comparison. We ask where it comes from. We look at the contextual and the psychological forces that push us to compare up with the rich or down with the poor or sometimes you know, to focus on um, similar others. And we trace how comparisons are structured by our communities and the media and political messages and even our own psychological cravings to look up or down. And all of these factors in our surroundings and within ourselves determine our social focus with consequence for politics. So Amber's going to talk in a minute about how exactly we did all this, but our core argument is that Americans as individuals are deeply sensitive to inequality but the American response, the public response to inequality, is muted by countervailing forces. So first, and, oh yeah, go ahead.
2: Um, and and in, this is this is how you talk about the idea of the social sonar.
1: That's right. So there's something kind of gumming up the works with American social sonar. Um, when we, in, you know, in studies, direct people's attention to the economic other, they respond in pretty expected ways. But in the real world, that's not always happening. So, for example, growing income segregation has made the rich increasingly invisible for most Americans, decreasing opportunity for upward com- comparison, misleading class images in the media fill the gap um, that then is, you know, left blank by personal experiences and um, Allowing stereotypes about class to increasingly structure our comparisons. Um, And then third, economic anxiety and precarity, which are just absolutely exploding in the U.S., make people crave downward comparison to feel better about themselves. Um, Again, decreasing upward comparison, which is the thing that makes people more accurate about status and supportive of the safety net. And then, you know, finally, underlying all of these factors, and we can talk more about this as we go um all these factors that structure perception and comparison underneath all of them is race and gender so race and gender separate us in communities and in institutions they structure our stereotypes and media images and they stoke our anxieties
2: and and so what you're what you found in the research is that you know, like in so many ways, Americans are pulled in two directions simultaneously um, around this question of economic inequality. Um, And I'd really be fascinated to talk to you now a little bit about how you got to this conclusion. What What was it that you found in the first experiment? And then I I believe it's a very large data set that you ultimately were able to sort of pursue and draw analysis from.
3: Sure, so we take a real mixed methods approach in this project. So we're departing from some of the more kind of standard approaches to studying public opinion about inequality. A lot of the existing literature really focuses on the individual. So looking, for example, at their ideology or their values or their income, their education and so on. But our, our argument here is that inequality is a relational construct and it's the social comparative thinking that we want to investigate. Um, but that turns out to be a really thorny methodological challenge. How do we actually study social comparative thinking, that sort of process is social comparison? Because with just observational data, if we were just to collect surveys, it would be impossible to untangle the social comparisons that people make from their own status and social context. So, for example, do wealthy people perceive their status higher because of their resources or because they're engaging in a lot of downward comparisons that make them that kind of elevate them? And what about our like our social contexts, you know, our social context and we're going to argue and show Uh, in the book, you know, are structuring our social comparative thinking. But of course, we're also self-selecting into our social networks or self-selecting into our communities. So really trying to isolate the effects of social comparison is is difficult. And so we turn um, to an experimental approach to begin. Um, And so we we resolve these challenges. Um, So our experimental study uh, we recruited; uh, these are nas- it's a nationally representative sample of Americans. We actually ran two um, large-scale, nationally representative uh, surveys, and we presented our subjects with um, a ladder. It's the MacArthur ladder of subjective status. It's um, a, it's a, a measurement tool that's used, you know, really around the world to measure how people see their own relative uh, social standing. But the experimental design is that we have a control group, and then we have one group that sees the MacArthur ladder and then is prompted to compare up, to think about those at the top of the ladder, those that have the most, you know, the income, the education, the the most prestigious occupation. Um, And then we've got a third group in which they're looking down. We we ask them to think about those on the bottom um, rung. And so with that sort of manipulation, we're we're able to then study how the social comparison affects um, political attitudes. And here we're looking at public opinion, support for redistribution, support for redistributive uh, programs. So we looked at uh, food stamps and unemployment, supporting or providing aid for for college. Um, We look at political efficacy. Um, and we are also uh, measuring people's uh, own status perceptions as well. So the experimental study is, is really helpful there for us to I- isolate or identify the effects of social comparison. But we don't just stick with it within the experimental framework. The study itself also had a free writing um, exercise. In the uh, in the treatment, we presented the ladder. We asked people to look up or look down, and then we asked folks in those treatment conditions to imagine a conversation with the person that they've imagined, um, to, to tell us a bit about how that interaction would go, what would they talk about, how did it make them feel? And it was just this open-ended free writing prompt. And then they continued on with the survey. Um, and so what we gathered was just a real treasure trove, if you will, of qualitative data of people just writing their their thoughts about the rich or the poor and how it made them feel. Um, In total, we have, I think it's nearly like 1300 responses. Um, And again, these were nationally representative uh, samples. And so the question then for for Megan and I was, how do we analyze these qualitative data? And here we take a much more interpretive approach. We are really applying, uh, if you will, an ethnographic sensibility to the data we are really trying to get at meaning-making. We're trying to understand kind of how our respondents were uh, reacting to these uh, social comparisons, how they're perceiving the world. Um, and so what we do in, our, uh, in the book is we're not just tailing up, you know, how often do our respondents mention certain keywords or anything like that. We, we really look at the sort of coherence, the association of their thoughts, as well as really the contradictions in what they were writing, that and also what they're not saying in their responses. So we've got the experimental um, approach, which gives us you know good leverage on the causal question. We've got the open-ended, the qualitative data that really allow us to investigate you know what's going on, how are people are reacting, what are their source of emotional responses, uh, what are the types of stereotypes that are that are coming to light for them. And then finally, um, we we then gather observational data where we were interested in looking at do the findings that we get in the survey experiments, do they map on to what we observe in the real world? And so there we draw on survey data from the general social survey, which includes um, uh, measures of uh, subjective status, but also includes um, uh, a lot of great public opinion questions as well. And in that uh, part of the book, the observational data, we're looking at how people's social context, in particular their communities or zip codes, um, how that, uh, how geographic contexts vary and might be shaping um, our political attitudes about inequality and redistribution. So in brief, in that part of the book, what we show is that for middle income Americans, who live in zip codes where they are more likely to engage in upward comparison, they're more likely to encounter the wealthy in their zip codes compared to the poor, that for middle-income Americans, they're more accurate about their their own subjective status, like where they fall in the income distribution, uh, and they're more supportive of of redistribution of uh, the sorts of social programs that we were looking at in our experimental design. So again, the observational data alone, um, you know, would be tricky, but the fact that we've got it paired with the experimental approach, you know, gives us some leverage um, to really unpack what we think is going, um, what we think is going on.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail, from accepting payments to managing inventory Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com/system all lowercase to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com/system.
2: And, and in that in that context, also you said and you you made reference to this, but the book also takes it up um, in terms of seeing some of the relational understanding around race and gender. Um, so in terms of this multi-method approach, what was surfaced by all of the different forms of data that you looked at in terms of not just the economics and the, the cross-class analysis, but also the relational connection that people have around race and gender?
1: Sure. So, um, You know, if you think about economic inequality through a lens of social comparison, as we work to do, it really becomes clear that class politics is identity politics, because people imagine the economic other as a person with race and gender. So when we talk about class and economic divides in the U.S., we're also thinking about race and gender, even if we don't admit it, or even sometimes, you know, if we don't fully recognize it. So we're social scientists. And if we were to try to explain economic difference with some sort of statistical representation, we're likely going to pick one indicator. So maybe income, maybe wealth, and show you how it varies across people all on its own. So, you know, maybe we'll bring in race or gender into the story by showing gaps or different distributions. But the economic indicator, that's its own separate thing, right? So when it comes to social comparative thinking, though, economic difference is never scrubbed of race, gender, or other social categories. It's animated by them. Economic difference, it's, it's almost literally fleshed out by social groups and identities in our minds. And Amber and I really believe that attention to social comparison reveals just the impossibility of solving mysteries about class and American politics without investigating race and gender. And throughout the book, we point out many ways in which they determine the nature and impact of cross-class social comparisons. Um, And we want to complicate what we think has become an oversimplified dichotomy between class politics and what, you know, people sometimes refer to as identity politics. So, um, you know, we do this in several ways across our studies. And in addition to the data sources that Amber talked about, we also introduce additional experiments to kind of investigate, uh, the, the role of race and gender and how they structure people's imagined economic others. Amber, do you want to talk a bit about some of the, some of our findings? Yeah, sure. So I had mentioned the
3: open-ended responses that we have and, you know, to be sure people were not telling us, I, you know, I imagined a person with all of these characteristics. Um, Sometimes they use though, coded language, and um, we had respondents tell us that they imagined a heavy set woman with a cell phone and lots of children. Um, and so, to really, uh, in, in kind of dig in and interrogate, kind of what are the stereotypes who's kind of coming to mind? Uh, we ran additional studies, so we um, quite literally would just ask them. Um, details, characteristics about the person they've imagined. And uh, we ran list experiments to, to really try to get at uh, social desirability bias. You know, if, if people, especially for our subjects who were engaged in the downward comparison, and maybe where they were um, imagining um, a uh, non-white economic other, um, not wanting to tell us. And so we use list experiments to really get at the ways in which poverty in America remains deeply racialized. And what we show is it is. Um, and so that's, that's one example of the ways in which um, the, the sort of economic other, as Megan was saying, that we, we can't neatly separate you know, the, the class and identity. Um, but there are other ways in which uh, race and, and gender come in as well. It's not just the pictures, the images, the stereotypes that our uh, Americans have of, of the rich and the poor, Um, But it's also their reactions to social comparison, their their propensities um, to engage in certain types of um, uh, comparison. So I'll give just a few examples here. Um, Our experiment, you know, by asking people to engage in upward or downward comparison, we then looked at like, well, then how does that affect one's own sense of of subjective status? And, you know, we show that when when folks look up, they feel low. um, Generally, across the board, we don't see much heterogeneity there. It's um you know, it's Republicans and Democrats and independents. though there is some suggestive evidence that that some of the most we might think of as like the most advantaged in our society are a little uh, less sensitive to that sort of um, status manipulation, if you will. And in this case, uh, it was white, you know, college educated men whose, status takes a little less of a fall when they engage in upward comparison to other groups. But in so other cases, it's actually uh, the white men in our study who were the most hypersensitive to some of the comparisons. And here, I'll just talk about the, the downward comparison to give the example. Um, downward comparison gives a boost to our subjects so that folks look down and they feel higher. Um, we, we observed it in the study, and then we, we ran a fo- uh, follow-up sur- uh, experimental survey, uh, survey experiment, excuse me, here, where we um, asked people to engage in downward comparison, but we manipulated. Uh, so the treatment here was manipulating who's at the bottom of the ladder. And in this case, we were using names to signal this sort of ethno-racial identity. Um, and we were signaling here um, for those that were in the the treatment group, that the person at the bottom was Latino, uh, at the bottom of the ladder was Latino um or was a, a non-hispanic white American for the other group. And what we see there is um, that white men, but especially those without college degrees, so we you know in some cases you might think of them as the sort of white working class, um, men here they get the biggest boost and that sort of downward comparison kind of looking and thinking in, in these sorts of racialized ways gave them the, the greatest um, the biggest boost compared to other groups And then finally we see um, this this case about um, I'll just bring in gender here and the ways in, in which gender uh, figures into our findings so Megan had mentioned that you know over, overall, people who are engaging in upward comparison are more supportive of redistribution. And when it came to downward comparison, it was a bit more of a mixed picture. We didn't really see much if you just looked at the data in aggregate. But if you disaggregate and in particular focus on gender and gender as well as its intersection with race, what you see there is that you've got some groups reacting differently to downward comparison. In some cases... Um, you have uh, Americans who think about the poor and it does make them want government to do more um, to to kind of shore up the social safety net. Um, Again, it's similar to the the study with the racialized downward comparison. We found that uh, white men, especially those without college degrees, um, were less supportive. Like their opinions moved in a conservative direction when they engaged in downward comparison. And then finally, you know, Megan was talking about the findings from the book and the overall argument. And we talk about that these social comparisons aren't just affecting our sense of status and our attitudes about what government should or shouldn't do about inequality, but they're also affecting our, our perceptions of, of political power and political efficacy here. And so uh, in the book, we, we test and we show um, through an experiment that looking up makes people feel low and and depresses uh, political efficacy. And we have some suggestive evidence similar to the finding where uh, white men with college degrees were somewhat less sensitive to, you know, just the the depressive effects of upward comparison, some suggestive evidence that uh, that white men's um, political efficacy is a bit more immune to the depressive effects of upward comparison. They're, They're a bit more stable um, compared to other groups, and and so in this regard, when you're talking
2: also about the discussion inside of the data, and you're you've been talking about how white men at, sort of have responded to looking up or looking down, what do you see with regard to women, particularly white women? Um, were you able to tease that out as well?
1: You know, I think um, the heterogeneity that we do find is, you know, is intriguing. Um, but I want to, before we really get into this question, I want to underscore that, by and large, the story that we found was one that wasn't characterized by heterogeneity. So, you know, people across social groups—men, women, um, people of color, white people—were responding quite similarly, by and large, to the prompts. So, you know. They would look up, feel lower. There were some differences in the sizes of those effects. Sometimes they would look down, they would feel higher. Um, Across partisan divides, across groups, when people looked up, they wanted government to do more um, in a a host of ways to uh, increase social support. Um, And for most groups, um, again, with some suggestive evidence that white men were were particularly We're just atypical and we're immune. People's efficacy fell. So really across the board, we see people responding very similarly to social comparison where we see a lot of difference, um, where we see a lot of differences in the construction of the economic other. So we see people constructing the poor in their imaginations by and large persistently as a woman of color. Um, we see people constructing the rich in their imaginations as a white man. Um, We see, you know, those stereotypes come in. Um, But I don't want to, I don't want to focus too much on the heterogeneity and suggest that, you know, there are these really atypical groups. Um, You know, Amber, do you want to add anything to that?
3: Yeah, I mean, the other, I mean, I think that's right. I mean, the, the story here being one of uh, similarity in terms of reaction. I mean, this is also where the open-ended responses um, you know, are, were, were interesting and did sort of point um, to where there might be some differences, even if they're um, overwhelmed by like the, the overall story of, of similarity. And in that case, I'll just talk about the open-ended reactions to thinking about the poor. Um, you know, we, we haven't really talked about that, those findings in the book. Um, but what we, you know, Megan's alluded to the, the sort of dominant and prevailing social stereotype of, of the poor and poverty. And, and we we see that in the open ended uh, responses, especially when it comes to discussions about uh, personal responsibility, uh, hard work, you know, are the poor responsible for, for being poor, if you will, you see discussions about uh, social mobility, you know, I've risen up the ranks, they can too. Um, but you do at the same time see um, concern, care, you know, compassion for the poor, a desire to do uh, to want to do more, um, some um, uh, concern, if you will. And there, you know, it's so hard it, to kind of tie back to what I was saying about studying these uh, this process, um, and really identifying the effect of social comparison, you would see, for example, women talking about their work, um, for example, that they were a Head Start teacher. And so they have experience and it has really, it humanizes the poor. Um, and so the, the question is like, well, is that the social comparison doing the working, or is it the fact that that individual has self-selected to become a Head Start teacher in the first place? So that's that's difficult um, to, to disentangle. Um, but, you know, I'll just echo what, what Megan said in terms of, um, you know, I think the, the broader story here is one in which Americans are very uh, responsive and reactive to, to growing inequality, especially the, the increase gap between the very rich and the rest. You know, we observe it in, in, our, um, in our experiments but this idea of what's gumming up the works, why aren't we observing this as much in the real world? I think takes up, you know, it's, it's, that's the second half of the book is really trying to understand these countervailing forces, the, the ways in which growing income segregation, right, residential income segregation, particularly for the very rich. Um, if you're thinking about growing uh, geographic segregation, it's, it's really the spatial, segregation of, of affluence is taking place. You're seeing it in communities, you're seeing it in schools. Or um, you think about um, at the same time that inequality is growing, we also have data showing that that people um, are feeling much more economically insecure and anxious. That you do see more income volatility in these last uh, few decades as uh, inequality is increased. And these things interact and matter too because they're shaping who we want to compare that that's the sort of either we're not wanting to think about economic difference because it just feels bad um, or, you know, thinking about when given the opportunity, you know, engage in a downward comparison because it makes us, makes us feel better. And I would imagine, you know, all of us um, have probably engaged in some of this downward comparison during this last year, you know, things are are bad. We're living in amidst a global pandemic and, telling, you know, ourselves, well, it could be worse, um, you know, looking at someone else who's got it much, much harder, um, kind of elevates. And and so in that sense, a lot of these things are universal. Um, They're, they're kind of part of our, our human experience. Yeah, I, I wanted
2: to ask um, about that in context of the second half of the book, and this question about, you know, how we get these signals about who we are comparing ourselves to, and you talk about, you know, the role of popular culture. You talk about the fact that the the rich sort of have become somewhat invisible. So, where do we get the the sort of ideas about um, who we are comparing ourselves to, and how that happens?
1: Yeah, that's a that's a great question. So, these these reference come in part from our, you know, our lived real world experiences, our social contact. Um, and you know, so in institutions, in the workplace, in our communities, um, and cross-class contact is in that way on, on the decline, you know, income segregation is increasing, but so, you know, in geographically, but also, you know, in our social institutions, even, um, even, Marriage, for example, you know, um, there's less um, marriage between people, you know, with, um, you know, from different class backgrounds. So that that sort of real world opportunity in the U.S. for cross class comparison is declining, um, and that is creating this space. Um, people are still going to make these comparisons. They're still going to think about them when they're trying to make sense of economic difference and inequality. And so the media really can fill, fill the gap here. Now, when it comes to the poor, I mean, we, we are far from the first, um, to talk about and identify, um, the persistent racialized, um, in particular images of poverty in the United States. Um, you know, what we found really builds on just a really long history of research in the social sciences, um, demonstrating that when Americans think of the poor, there's this very clear shared public image um, of an undeserving person that that is racialized. And you asked before, you know, about, you know, white women and about if they were different. And, you know, here, this is the, this is sort of the point that, that people across all these groups, certainly people across genders, have this shared image of poverty that is coming from, you know, from our from our politics, from our political rhetoric, that's coming from media, um, and that really hasn't you know we don't observe that it's changed much since you know seminal studies of this across across the you know the last half century. Um, when it comes to the rich, the media is of course playing a huge role here too, and this is where Amber alluded to graduate students asking us questions and pushing us when we gave early talks on this research. And I have to say the question that we kept getting asked in particular by young um, women in the audience was what about Kim Kardashian? <laughs> so it was like, "What you're saying that we don't see the rich, but what about Kim Kardashian? We see all of these images of wealth in the media, on social media, reality television. We're just inundated with them. And so, you know, at first Amber and I, we're like, you know, look, we're not media scholars. That's really interesting, but that's not our wheelhouse. We're going to leave that to Lily. You know, that's we're going to leave that to you. We're going to leave that to experts in the field. But we kept getting it, and we were curious. So we started with the question um, of just does media exposure to wealth look like the sort of comparison that we observe either in the real world or in our experiments? And we spent. You know, a summer watching reality television, um, which uh, was a was kind of a strange research turn to take, um, but but we did, and in particular, we were watching it systematically and coding for um, characteristics of the the wealthy person and whether there was contrast induced. Um, and what we found, you know, to anybody who watches any of this um, or is on social media at all, is probably not that surprising. These um, so in the real world and in our experiments, contra- upward com- comparison, upward contrast, makes you feel different and makes you feel far from this other person, and is uncomfortable. And you kind of want to get away from it. You don't. It doesn't feel good. People don't like it. It makes them feel low, and that's certainly not what media is trying to do, right? It's supposed to feel pleasurable. It's kind of designed to make you want to consume more. And so this is the the online and the um, the sort of especially reality television, uh, parasocial contact. So this kind of mediated contact with wealth um, is engineered specifically to make people feel closer to, or even in some cases, higher than the wealthy other. So it flips the social comparison. And in the book, we say that media does this in three ways. We call it um, the fool, the friend and the fairy godparent. So the fool is, um, you know, the, the wealthy person on a reality TV program, for example, who you can look on with derision. The person is wealthy, but they can't get along with anyone, or they're having lots of conflict, or they're not hard workers, they're lazy. Um, and so you can watch wealth, but you can feel superior, which, um, is, you know, very clearly engineered by shows as far back to like, you know, the, the simple life with Paris Hilton, where she, you know, couldn't do basic um, working class jobs, um, even to, you know, sort of, you can take your pick of any reality television that we, you know, you might, you might turn on now. Um, So there's that, that fool. Um, There we note that rich characters in media are predominantly (laughs) children. Um, It's easier to kind of look down on adolescents, like on super sweet 16. Um, They are also predominantly women and disproportionately people of color. And so there's this very, I think, purposeful um, engineering to allow people to to look at wealth but to feel superior. So that's the first way. Then there's the friend, which you can think of as Us Weekly is the rich, they're just like us. Um, Celebrities, they're just like us. Where you see this very careful um, crafting of media to make people feel close to rather than distant from a wealthy, um, a wealthy referent. Um, And then uh, finally, there's the fairy godparent, which is the trope in reality um, television in particular, the undercover boss, the shark tank shark, um, or even, you know, even to some extent, you know, Donald Trump and the Apprentice, who... the rich there is situated as the person who holds the keys to the kingdom and it's going to help everybody up, you know, is going to lend a hand and help someone who's not rich, um, rise up. So, you know, in these ways, that's what we see is that the answer is, what about Kim Kardashian? It's that she's not serving the same purpose that cross-class contact, um, does in the, in the real world because it's so carefully engineered to be, to be attractive and pleasurable for the viewer.
2: And, and in this regard you you also integrate into the book the fact that because this is this is to some degree many of our exposure to the rich um, that we have you know we have this kind of weird understanding then of who the rich are in comparison to ourselves is that correct
1: that's right that's right so um you know to some extent these are Testable hypotheses that we didn't test. We didn't do, you know, specific media exposure studies in this book. Um, we hope that the book sparks some of that research, um, but we we find it very difficult to believe that the media that people are consuming um, that features wealthy individuals is functioning much like the observational or the or the experimental data where we simply, you know watch what happens when people compare with a wealthy other who isn't specifically designed to be sort of endearing or attractive. Um,
2: and and so at the end of one of the last chapters is about the power of social comparison, which is what you've also been talking about and to some degree trace this throughout the book is that we have these kind of, we we position ourselves to sometimes look up and sometimes look down and and we're always, as you note, you know, sort of putting on our social sonar. Um, and so it's not that we walk through the world and make these decisions. It's just that, as you, all, as you both note, this is who we are as human beings, that we're always in this sort of structural comparison. Um, but what is that power? Because you also note that it kind of works against itself. Can in terms you, of policy,
1: meaning, can you say that, a bit more about what you mean about working against itself? That that the
2: the countervailing forces in terms of understanding how we how we consume ourselves and how that makes us either advocate for or turn against um, policies that may level inequ- economic inequality. Um, And and that may be a a real sort of governmental means or public means of solving some of these sort of structural inequalities.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we think that social comparison is a mechanism through which inequality is reinforcing right now. So as inequality increases the, um, you know, so too are the anxiety that make us shy away from upward comparison. and the, you know, the, the institutional and geographic separation between people of different classes. And that then mutes support for redistributive policies that might, you know, that might then um, reduce inequality and kind of interrupt the cycle. And, you know, we talk about the power of social comparison too, because social comparison is a is a resource that can be wielded with intention um, by political actors. So we we haven't talked much about this, but we also have you know we talk we we trace some political rhetoric throughout the book, you know where political actors are directing people's attention up or down and trying to in some ways fight, you know especially on the left fight against the current um, and get people you know get people to look up in a way that might increase support for. Um, redistributive policy, for social spending, for, you know, to, to improve the safety net. Um, And, you know, what we're showing is that, yes, that works to induce opinion change. Um, That upward comparison does have that effect. Um, But it's, it's hard to come by. Um, And it comes with, you know, with a side effect of, in some cases, depressing Political efficacy. you know, you look up, you want government to do more, but you also experience yourself as farther from the centers of power, and you know, therefore, it's somewhat demobilizing. Um, so we—that's um, something that we're working on now. Actually, is trying to investigate that dynamic, that dynamic a bit more. Amber, do you want to?
3: Yeah, I'll I'll just add. You know, it's interesting. Is there's earlier work. You know, back in the in the 1990s, talking about how Democrats in particular, they kind of excised the rich man from their their rhetoric, that you're just not seeing much class based rhetoric. And that's changed. That's just not true today. We we kind of give examples throughout the book of the sort of look up at these at these billionaires and. Um, you know those that are just uh, benefiting from from these tax policies, these tax cuts, and and so on and so forth. But it also turns out that Democrats aren't the only ones um, that are, in some ways, trying to um, to have an impact on us, to shape our, our opinions and our demands through getting us, to, trying to get us to engage in, in social comparison and using sort of social comparisons within their political rhetoric and. And here, I, I think you know Trump is a is an example. I mean, he really intuited the the sort of power of social comparison, you know, Lily, to, to go back to your question about how it how it's kind of um, a, a source of power. You know, if you think over the last four years or, or really kind of what got Trump onto the onto the scene, I mean, he he engaged in a lot of upward comparison. I mean, in his rhetoric, he'd be talking about hedge fund guys um he would say no this this economy's not working for the middle class but it would be kind of a one two punch right so he would encourage folks to look up but it would be followed quickly with a downward comparison right and whether it's talking about immigrants especially thinking about his his run um in in 2015 to 2016 but even once he's elected, you know, elected president, the sort of rhetoric that he would use at his rallies of of trying to boost his supporters, you know, you they think that they're the elite? No, you're the elite. You're the super elite. Um, and so, you know, Megan alluded in terms of kind of where some of our research is going. You know, we've, we've been spending the last Year, um, really trying to collect more systematically um, the the political rhetoric, um, whether it's amongst uh, used by democratic candidates as well as um, those on on the political right as well. And so
2: that was my next question: is what what does this book lead you to in terms of the the sort of follow on research project?
1: Yeah, I think that we've um, you know we've kind of hinted at both of them now, Um, we're going in two primary directions, um, which might come together into into a single project. But um, So the first is really trying to investigate this efficacy dynamic um, that we uncover in the book with people feeling less than, people feeling not not listened to, not heard, disempowered by this experience of upward comparison. Um, So we're curious about that um, and we want to know, you know, we want to know who's most affected, and whether, in particular, there are messages, mobilization messages, in particular, that can counteract the demobilization that we observe. So, in the book, at the end, we hypothesize that messages of solidarity and descriptive representation, drawing attention to descriptive representation in terms of race, ethnicity, gender, um, might work to boost efficacy in the face of upward comparison. So um, both solidarity and descriptive representation enhance efficacy on their own. Other scholars have shown that. So we're testing whether they might be combined with messages that draw attention to upper tail inequality in a sort of you know what we think of as a progressive drug cocktail, something that will move opinion towards support for redistribution, but then at the same time protect efficacy and mobilize people. Um, so that that efficacy line of research is one thing that we've been working on. And then um, Amber, do you want to talk a bit more about the um, political elite and rhetoric? Yeah.
3: So, you know, I'd
1: mentioned over the last year, we, we've had a team of students,
3: undergraduate students helping us um, with this project. And so we've been gathering um, data from, from Twitter. So tweets and, um, that reference inequality tweets from um, political elites and then coding and looking at how they're talking about economic inequality. Are they drawing our attentions up? Are they drawing um, our attentions down? We've looked at political speeches, um, debate transcripts, and and there... Um, you know, I think it's interesting that we're talking to you now, you know, a week out from, from the inauguration. So I'm not sure when this uh, episode will, will air, but there's, there's a lot of questions about kind of what comes next. And where we are right now is, um, you know, questions about a new Biden administration, what a, a new kind of economic stimulus will sort of look like. What's interesting is that of the Democratic candidates, you know, in 2019 and in early 2020, Biden was one of the, the ones who kind of referenced upward comparison the least. Um, and his rhetoric tends to focus on it's the middle class um, and kind of conjuring up those sorts of images um, in contrast to, to other candidates. I mean, it was a very crowded field. Um, and now we're heading into 2021 where Democrats are looking to to rally support for um, for spending bills, for an economic stimulus. And so we'll be looking at the sort of rhetoric that's used um, by um, by Democrats in terms of trying to shape um, public opinion in support of these sorts of redistributive measures.
2: Well, I hope that you will both come on the New Books Network once the next book is out and talk to me about it so we can continue the conversation.
3: Oh, of course. We'd be happy to.
2: Um, I am so pleased to have been able to chat with Megan Condon and Amber Wachowski about their new book, The Economic Other, Inequality in the American Political Imagination. This was just recently published in 2020 by the University of Chicago Press. I assume it is available at the University of Chicago Press website here in Milwaukee, where two of us live. I have a feeling you can get it online at Boswell Book Company. Um, any place else anybody wants to give a shout out to?
1: Oh, sure. Um, the book table in Oak Park and the Ivy bookstore in Baltimore are my two, my two favorites and they both, uh, will happily ship this book to you.
2: Great. So thank you, Megan and Amber for joining me today. And, um, and I hope everybody stays healthy.
1: Thanks, Lily. Thank you, Lily. Take care.